skip that question and I'm actually going to go back to chapter 2 question number 10 so if you're looking at your your notes there how does how does Paul describe God working through him how does Paul describe God working through him and this the, the clue for this is verse 14 chapter 2 verse 14 I'll give you a, a, some help here. As diffusing the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. That's the way the New King James Version puts it. If you have a New American Standard, it says, it calls this a sweet aroma. Now, when I think about something diffusing fragrance, I, I think about those things you plug into your outlet at the house. Or maybe one of those diffusers for essential oils or something like that. And when you walk into a room with one of those things, you know it right away, don't you? You can quickly detect that something is different. And the problem is, what might smell good to me may not smell so good to someone else. Might, in fact, even be sickening to someone else. Uh, I recall a time when we lived in Clarksville, uh, Tennessee, and, you know, I was in the store, and I walked past all these things that you plug into your outlets that have, you know, these flowery fragrances and whatever. And I remember thinking, you know, I need one of those for my office at the house to make it smell a little less like, you know, man. So I bought one, I plugged it in, and I leaned back, and I thought, wow, that smells pretty good. And Linda came home, and she said, what is that smell? So one of those great ideas with a short lifespan, you might say. Um, Paul referred to the knowledge of Christ as this sweet aroma. The, the knowledge of Christ is the good news, the the gospel, and the gospel is God's power to save, we know from Romans 1 and verse 16. For some, that is a wonderful aroma of life leading to life, Paul says. But to others, perhaps a sickening aroma, an aroma of death leading to death. All right, question 12. How do, th this is really a two-part question. I'm really going to talk about the first part more than anything else. How do many misuse the word of God? This is question number 12. Your hint is in verse 17, chapter 2. How do many misuse the word of God? What does it say? Your version may say something different, but corrupt. Anybody's version say something else? Peddlers, okay. They are peddlers of the word. The New King James Version says, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God. If you have the older King James Version, it says, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But really the meaning of, of the Greek word here is, is so much broader than just corrupting or adulterating the word of God. Because it carries with it the idea of pawning off a product for gain. 
or in this case, using the word of God for the sole purpose of turning a prophet. And so that's why so many of the translations actually use the word peddlers here. And I'm reminded of the seven sons of Siva at Ephesus there at Acts 19. They took it upon themselves to, to invoke the name of Jesus when trying to cast out evil spirits. And we're not told that they were peddling exorcisms. Uh, but at the very least, the context suggests that their motives were not pure. So unlike Jesus and unlike Paul, this evil spirit did not know who they were. Uh, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 20, excuse me, Matthew 7 and verse 23, a familiar passage, uh, for those that do not do the will of the Father, he said, depart from me, I never knew you. So that's going to be a serious problem for us. If we get to the judgment and Jesus says, I don't know you. All right, just something to think about. Uh, also can't help but think about a lot of so-called faith healers and even some televangelists of our day that... that Overpromise and under under deliver, as they say, they they live extravagant lifestyles while doing that. And you can almost hear them say, "Faith is my business, and business is good." You know, so uh, I got a kick out of how the New Living Translation actually words this here in verse 17. It says, "You see, we are not like so many hucksters who preach the for personal profit." So hucksters is the word they use. But, uh, you know, Paul is pointing out, uh, I haven't been that way with you. And so, any comments on, you know, misusing the word of God? Okay, and then there are some points to ponder I want to cover really quickly and then jump into chapter 3. So, points to ponder for chapter 2. We can't allow loneliness or discouragement to keep us from moving forward. Paul was discouraged at Troas, but he kept moving forward. We should all be a source of joy to our brethren, not grief. For an erring brethren, uh, brother who repents, we're not only to forgive them, but we're to offer comfort and we're to reaffirm our love for them. Why? So as not to give place to the devil. We talked about the principle of the path. Paths lead where paths lead. Doesn't matter who's on the path. Doesn't matter how you got there. Doesn't matter your motives. Paths lead where paths lead. Give Satan an inch. He'll be your ruler. Diffuse the fragrance of Christ wherever you go. And if you'll go ahead and swap that over. Chapter 3, Lee. I've titled chapter 3, The Problem of Legalism. Uh, that's the title proposed by Paul Butler in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, and, and I've kind of been sticking with those. The term legalism is, is used in a number of different ways. Here we go. And, and often means different things to different people. Denominations often use the word legalism in one of two ways. You see those up on the slide there. To describe someone who believes that salvation is contingent on performing a strict set of requirements of the law, 
or to describe anyone that sticks to the letter of the law and allows absolutely no deviation from it. And many today would argue that either one of these definitions excludes grace or even faith from the equation, which is why discussions about legalism inevitably lead down the path of discussion of faith versus works. But when we talk about requirements of the law, or when we talk about the letter of the law, I think fair questions to ask anyone, is, if we're having this conversation, is what requirements, what letter, what law are you talking about? When it comes to God's laws, we must abide by the letter of his laws. We must not deviate from them. The Old Testament is just filled with examples of, of people who heard the word of the Lord and did just as the Lord had commanded them. It's a direct quote from a number of instances. God praised them for that. Noah's building of the ark, the building of the tabernacle, just a couple of easy examples of that. <clears throat> the Old Testament is also filled with examples of those that deviated from the word of the Lord or um, even made some presumptions about what they thought the Lord would like or dislike. And they were punished for it. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, priests in the temple, did something God had not commanded. They were struck down because of it. Recall Uzzah died when he touched the Ark of the Covenant, even though his intentions appear to have been good intentions. But again, what law are we to abide by? What law are we under today? Now, students of the Bible know that, that we can divide history up into dispensations based on the law that they were under. Prior to Moses, there was this patriarchal dispensation, we call it. That period of time when God spoke his laws to and dealt directly with the heads of households, the, the patriarchs, we call them. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, just to name a few. Beginning during the time of Moses, we have the Mosaic dispensation. That, that period of time when, when God spoke his laws to a new law, to Moses. This was a law specific to the nation of Israel. And then at the death of Christ, we have this final dispensation. We often call it Christian dispensation. That period of time when God's final covenant and his final laws were established for all people of all nations and for all time. So when we look at the problem of legalism here in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, what we're talking about is this sort of friction that is occurring between the old law, the law of Moses, and this new law. And the failure of some to recognize or, or make a distinction between the two. We've said it before. Old habits die hard. The law of Moses had been in place for 1,500 years. And even some of the new Jewish converts to Christianity were finding it difficult 
to simply abandon those laws. And they continued to teach that new Christians, Jew or Gentile, had to follow certain requirements of the old law, circumcision, for instance. Uh, the New Testament calls them false teachers and false prophets. Paul calls them false apostles and deceitful workers here in this letter, chapter 11 and verse 13. And, and most likely he calls them that to, to emphasize the point that the very ones that were claiming that Paul was a false apostle were themselves false apostles. Uh, you've probably heard the term Judaizers used from time to time to describe such false teachers, e even though that's not a, a Bible word. I believe the origin of that comes from Acts 15 and verse 1, where it talks about certain men going down to Antioch of Syria from Judea. And they were teaching that one could not be saved unless they were circumcised. But you see that word Judea in with the word Judaizers. So again, the problem we're talking about here, the legalism here in chapter 3, comes from, from, from those that were sticking to the letter of the law, but they had the wrong letter and they had the wrong law. Uh, we're going to notice in particular, verses 6 through 11, Paul makes a comparison between the letter, referring to the old covenant, and the spirit, referring to the new covenant. And he comes right out and tells them that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what I want to do is read the third chapter of 2 Corinthians. And again, when we get to about verses 6 through 11, you can kind of reference this table up on the screen here. That really, uh, it, it pulls quotes from the context out and you can really see that comparison between the old law and the new law. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. In verse 4, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Verse 6, we're getting into this comparison. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter. Now if you're inclined to kind of underline things or circle things in your Bibles, if you've got a tablet like this, don't do that. You're going to just leave marks, right? Um, if you're inclined to underline things and circle things, you could underline the, the aspects of the old law, and you could circle those aspects of the new law, and you have this ready comparison right there in front of you. So not of the letter. You might underline the letter, but of the spirit. You might circle the spirit. For the letter kills, you might underline, the letter kills. 
But the Spirit gives life. So you might circle the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, you might underline ministry of death, underline written and engraved on stones, was glorious. You might underline glorious. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. You might underline which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit, you might circle ministry of the Spirit, not be more glorious? You might circle more glorious. In verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation, you might underline ministry of condemnation, had glory, the ministry of righteousness, you might circle ministry of righteousness, exceeds much more in glory. You might circle exceeds much more in glory. In verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away, you might underscore, is passing away, was glorious, what remains, you might circle remains, is much more glorious. Continuing in verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now verse 18, a favorite of mine. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In my prayers, I often thank God for his word, for its power to transform us from from. Or, or into what God would have us be. And that's the image of his son. You know, I, I, I heard someone pray one time, Lord, I know I am not what I ought to be. But thank you that I'm not what I used to be. We are all on a lifelong spiritual journey to become more like Christ. The question is, does every day, does every trial, does every temptation bring us closer to Christ, or do we allow those things to pull us away from Christ? And that's just something to think about. Okay, I'm going to leave this slide up, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump to chapter 4, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to summarize it, and then if we have time, we'll come back and start working on these questions. And that, that'll assure us of getting through chapters 3 and 4 today and pick up with chapter 5 next week. Don't need to transition the slides, though, at this point. So, All right. <clears throat> so uh, let me read here 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And again, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And 
a kind of titled chapter four, The Problem of Discouragement. So just sort of think of that as we go. Beginning in verse one, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So there's kind of the idea of discouragement, or rather the statement that we should not be discouraged, right? We should not lose heart. Verse two, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe. So we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. There it is again. Why? Verse, continuing in verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we could summarize chapter 4 by saying that, that, that Paul begins by explaining why some people do not believe the truth. We might wonder why, why it's so difficult. Why do not people not see the truth? 
Now, if you, if you grew up in the church, if you were raised on the pew, as we sometimes say, you may not even remember a time when you did not have or did not know or did not believe the truth. You were taught the truth from an early age, and, and at some point it was simply a matter of being obedient to that truth. But for others, myself included, you may recall a time when you did not have or did not know or understand or believe the truth. And Paul offers a few explanations for that here in chapter 4, all of which can be tied back to the various methods used by the God of this age or the God of this world, depending on your translation, to deceive people. And that's in verse 4. One reason he offers is that some preachers handle God's word with craftiness and deceit. That's, that's a turnoff, isn't it? It pushes people away. It's been said that a politician is someone who has both feet planted firmly in the air. There is a tendency for them to be swayed by the changing winds of men's emotions. And they're often guilty of, of handling the truth with this craftiness and deceit. It's kind of spinning the truth in such a way that you know, maybe there's a shred of truth there somewhere, but it's really no longer the truth. And, and uh, can't we relate to that? That's the reason that most of us have developed, uh, or maybe I should just speak for myself, a lack of trust in some of the things politicians say. At least I've learned to be wary of what they say. Maybe that's a better way to say it. But it can be just the same with spiritual leaders today, just as it was in Paul's day. One spiritual leader says something completely from different from another spiritual leader, if they both can't be right, well, who are people supposed to listen to? And it results in this, this confusion. And, and people in general have developed a lack of trust in what spiritual leaders have to say. They're kind of wary of them. And so it sort of pushes people away. Another reason Paul offers is that some people simply refuse to believe. And Therefore, the gospel is hidden to them. Uh, the, the parable of the sower in, in Matthew chapter 13 goes into, uh, explains this very thing. Recall the seeds that fell by the wayside. The hard ground that, that corresponds to a hardened heart. Of course, the seed, the word of God, cannot take root in such a place. In fact, the picture we get from that parable there in Matthew 13 is one of birds coming along and just, just immediately devouring the seed. And then when Jesus goes on to explain this parable, he compares the bird to the wicked one who snatches away what was sown. Paul then goes on in chapter 4 to talk about the genuine character of a true minister. One who does not preach to glorify himself, but instead to glorify God. And how one's life should be a manifestation of that truth. Paul talks about how God chose to reveal 
his treasure through these vessels of clay or earthen vessels, depending on your translation. God could have revealed his amazing plan. He could have stored it, uh, his amazing plan in a number of different ways, ways that, that we might consider to be much more efficient or much more effective if, if we were calling the shots. But it's God's plan, isn't it? And he chose ordinary men you and me, to do that. And then Paul ends chapter 4 by talking about the ultimate goal in life, that our inward man, our soul, is being renewed day by day. So that's just a quick summary of chapter 4. <clears throat> what I want to do now is kind of back up and get into some of these questions. It's like we have maybe 10 to 12 minutes left. Uh, and we'll start with this one here. It's, it's chapter 3, question 1. Who was Paul's epistle of commendation? Includes in the first couple of verses. The church, the Corinthians themselves. Okay, what is a letter of commendation? So think about that for a minute. When I was in the army, a, a letter of commendation was a letter praising someone for some great thing that they did, great thing that they accomplished. It didn't quite rise to the level uh, for receiving a medal, such as an Army Commendation Medal, but it was something noteworthy. It was something commendable in nature, and it was important for the chain of command to sort of point that out and sort of give you a pat on the back, okay? A letter of commendation. But in the Greek, in the Bible here, the word that's translated as commendation in chapter 3 and verse 1 simply refers to an introduction or perhaps more appropriately a recommendation. And your translation may use that word recommendation instead of commendation. Uh, think back in our lesson where we had Aquila and Priscilla. Where did they meet Apollos? Where were they when they met Apollos? What city? Ephesus, right. We see that near the end of Acts 18. After Paul leaves Antioch of Pisidia, he's en route to Ephesus. And before he gets there, we see this sort of dialogue between Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. What was Apollos' problem? Okay, He was an eloquent man, wasn't he? There you go. He only knew the baptism of John. It says he was mighty in the scriptures. He taught accurately the things of the Lord. He had just about everything right, but he knew only the baptism of John. Of course, we know that Aquila and Priscilla, they pull Apollos aside, and, and they, they did what? They instructed him. They taught him more accurately the ways of God. Then it says that Apollos desired to cross over to Achaia, and we know from Acts 19 and verse 1 that he went to Corinth. But it goes on to say that the brethren in Ephesus wrote a letter, uh, presumably to the churches in Achaia, but it could have been specific to the church at Corinth, exhorting the brethren there to receive Apollos. Now, this was a letter of recommendation. It was a letter of commendation from the church at Ephesus to the church at Corinth on behalf of Apollos. Uh, you'll recall that Barnabas did 
Well, essentially the same thing for Paul, still Saul, back in Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and following. Only instead of writing a letter, he did it in person. Recall that Saul had been converted on the road to Damascus and had gone to Jerusalem to try to join with the disciples there. And that's a lesson in and of itself right there, what it means to join with a congregation and why it's important to do that. We're not going to go down that path today. But the brethren in Jerusalem did not believe Saul, did they? They were afraid of him. I guess you could say that this man's reputation preceded him, like a tidal wave <laughs> preceded him. Um, Barnabas took Saul before the apostles and convinced them of the genuine, genuineness of Saul's faith. And that's the same thing that was accomplished by that letter for Apollos sent from the brethren in Ephesus to the brethren in Corinth. Now, we don't know if Apollos was, was known to them in Corinth, but known or unknown, it doesn't matter. That The purpose of the letter was to commend or to recommend that the brethren receive him. Now, does, does that establish a precedent for us today? I know there's varying opinions on that. I believe it does. The Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve this for us there at the end of Acts 18. Uh, I know that when, when Linda and I left Clarksville, Tennessee in 2005 and we came here to Murfreesboro, before we left, I asked for a letter of commendation from the brethren in Clarksville, a letter that would be given to the brethren or to the elders at, at whatever congregation we decided to join. And, and we did that. And uh, John and Gerald were elders back then, along with Ron Pirtle. I, I don't know if John and Gerald still have that letter, but it was a sealed letter. And to this day, Linda and I have no idea what that letter actually said. And, and I'm not going to stand here and say that if you came here and you joined this congregation and you didn't have a letter of commendation from your previous congregation, that, that you're somehow wrong in that. I'm just going to say that there is precedent for it. And if you think about it, it, it one can see the wisdom in doing that. And the point of all this is that Paul is asking the question in chapter 3 and verse 1, do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or from you? That's, that's what you would call a rhetorical question, right? Uh, some had questioned his apostleship, so he's reminding them, I've lived with you, I've lived among you, I laughed with you, I cried with you, I taught you the words of the God. You watched me perform signs and wonders. In short, you know who I am. And through my actions, you know whose I am. And one additional comment about verse 2. Uh, you've probably heard this before. Some people have said we're the only Bible some people will ever read. And I don't know who said that, but it seems like Paul is saying the same thing here in verse 2. And uh, to finish that quotation, we are the only Bible some people will ever read. What passages are they reading from us today? So I, I really like that. But we'll pause for a minute. We only have about five minutes left, but any comments about letters of commendation or or Paul's rhetorical question, or the fact that we are a living Bible.
All right. Um, okay, what writing instrument had Paul used to make the Corinthians an epistle of Christ, and upon what had he written? Uh, I just gave you the answer there. Uh, keep in mind that the old law was, was revealed by and through Moses, while the new law was revealed by and through the Holy Spirit. This writing about the word of God on fleshly tables or tablets of the heart, should that have come as a surprise to anyone? It shouldn't, because more than 500 years before the arrival of Christ, the prophet Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers, but a new covenant that I will put in their minds and write in their hearts. We see that quoted again over in Hebrews chapter 8, where the Hebrews writer points out that, that this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. And, and Paul seems to be echoing the same things here. And I think it would be safe to say that every one of us carries a copy of God's word around in our hands. Most of us have access to a smartphone these days, and you probably have a Bible application on there. But the words of God won't do us a bit of good until and unless they are written on our hearts. All right. Let me jump over to question number eight. How else are the Old and New Covenants described in verse 11? What did you get as an answer for that? This goes back to that comparison. One fades, one remains. Okay, one fades or is passing away, one remains. In, uh, in the time we have left, let me say a few things about the passing of the old law. Uh, are there people even today that refuse to let go of elements of the old law? No. You've heard of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? Uh, I thought it rather humorous when I heard someone say one time, if we still practiced an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, there'd sure be a lot of blind, toothless people running around. <laughs> what about the Ten Commandments? The people kind of hold to that as if the Ten Commandments in their entirety are binding on us today. And they do. And, you know, we know that was part of the old law. We know that law was replaced by a new and permanent law. And we observe the actions of the apostles whose custom was to meet on the first day of the week. And I'm kind of referring to that, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The rest of the Ten Commandments are really encapsulated within the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30 and 31. You shall love the Lord your God with all your, and this is the way I teach it back in the back, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The first and great commandment, isn't it? The second, like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You could summarize all of that by saying, love God, love people. Remember the Sabbath, they keep it holy. Again, we look at the, the actions of the apostles whose custom was to meet on the first day of the week, which is what day? Sunday, not the last day of the week, which is a Saturday. You heard the phrase, Sunday is the Christian Sabbath? 
You ever heard that before? Is that a good phrase to use? Not really when we understand what a Sabbath, what the word Sabbath means. What does Sabbath mean? Is what? I haven't heard that. But what does Sabbath mean? Rest. It, it comes from the Hebrew word sabbat, which actually means intermission or break. And I was going to say the first time we see it used in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 23 at Mount Sinai, God referred to it as a Sabbath rest. So we sometimes say the Sabbath means just rest. So that's, um, what is the significance of the last day of the week? Day we would call Saturday. What is the significance of that day in the Bible? God rested. He spent six days creating, and on the seventh day, he rested. And, you know, he, he, he blessed it, and he sanctified it. That's, it's important for us to know that. But we see no indication that God commanded that day to be observed in any way until he commanded the Israelites to do it in Exodus 16 and verse 23. And I say all that simply because, I think we're out of time, but um, people, Sabbatarians, like the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to make much ground trying to convince them about the old laws past and we now have a new law because they will say, this predates the old law. Okay. But again, you have to go back to the fact that God never commanded it to be observed in any way until he commanded the Israelites to do it in Exodus 16 and verse 23. All right, uh, that brings us to the close of this class. Um, please continue working your questions and answers from chapters uh, 5 and 6, and we'll pick up there next week. All right? I'll put the answers up on the website.